Good morning, good afternoon, and good evening. Welcome or welcome back to Season 3 of the Logical Christian Podcast. I'm your Logical Christian, Dan Irwin. The Logical Christian Podcast is not here to tell you what to think. It's an exercise in how to think. Rather than just accept what we're being told with regard to current events, politics, science, religion, and everything else, we're going to stop the spin, ask questions, dive deep, and look at the world logically. And since logic is a gift from God, most importantly, we're going to look at it all as Christians. Links can be found in the show notes if you'd like to follow along. So with that, let's go be logical Christians. You know, I was thinking about you just the other day, and and I was thinking about how you and I, I mean, we are the world, right? I mean, we are the children. We are the ones who make a brighter day. So, So let's start giving, right? I mean, look, the bottom line is that there's a choice we're making. In fact, we're saving our own lives. But it's true. We'll make a better day. Just you and and me. See, if we could see ourselves correctly, you know, as masters of our own destiny, kings among, well, I guess other kings, as the ultimate beings in the universe, then we could make this world better. I don't know, maybe those Tower of Babel, Noah's Descendants guys had the right idea. Maybe we should all just kind of come together and work as one and make a name for ourselves. Then we'd show, I well, them, I guess. On today's episode, first we're going to finally figure out what our lives are really all about. And then we're just going to lie. Lie like a coon dog on top of an old penny on a Persian rug under a freshly fallen pine tree from the most recent storm under a blanket of snow all on top of that pavement just lying in the parking lot. So, grab your cape and your mask, but no spandex. Can we just do baggy sweats or comfy pants or something for once? Does it always have to be skin tight? Everything revealing spandex. And then, come as you are, but leave your context at home, because (laughs) we don't need no stinking context. Oh, and hey, lucky you, goal update number one, 2024 edition, is on after the bumper music. So, like a bunch of bosses, here we go. So just a warning up front, this segment will probably not apply to everyone. Truth be told, this will really only apply to you if you've ever read a story or watched a movie or had difficulty in your life at some point and or overcome difficulties in your life. So for all the rest of you, I guess you can go outside and build a snowman or go back to sleep or hit the beach. Don't forget to put on sunblock or just get back to work for a little while. You know, whatever it is you're doing, wherever you may be at whatever time it might be. At. Anyway, for the select few that can actually identify with one or more of the fairly narrow criteria, let me introduce you to something termed the hero's journey. Although not the article in question for the segment, I think we need to delve into a little background first. So found on Grammarly.com, headline, well, actually title, this isn't a news article, it's an informational page, The 12 Steps of the Hero's Journey. Let's start with what the hero's journey is. Quote, The hero's journey is a widely recognized storytelling pattern that has been used for centuries in literature and mythology. It is a framework that helps writers create compelling stories that resonate with their readers by depicting a protagonist who goes through a transformative journey. The journey usually involves a series of challenges that the protagonist must overcome in order to achieve their goal. The hero's journey is also known as the monomyth, a term coined by Joseph Campbell in his book The Hero with a Thousand Faces. Let me step in here for a moment and say, that's a lot of faces. Continuing on, quote, The monomyth, or hero's journey, is a storytelling pattern that transcends genres and time periods. 
It is a timeless concept that continues to be relevant today because it speaks to universal themes such as self-discovery, transformation, and growth. Now, no doubt you recognize what this is at this point, I would think at least, although you may have never actually heard the term. Next, they give us a brief idea of the purpose of this well-established storytelling pattern. Quote, the purpose of the hero's journey is to create a compelling narrative that resonates with readers on an emotional level. The hero's journey is a timeless plot that has been used to create some of the most memorable works of literature and mythology. It speaks to themes of human experience, including self-discovery, transformation, and growth. So basically, this is a way to tell a life story. We generally like this form of storytelling because we can somewhat identify with it, but we can also find escapism in it because rarely does an actual life follow this kind of pattern. It's an idealized kind of story, one with the happy music at the beginning and the ominous music in the middle and the happy music at the resolution. Finally, before we get into our actual article, let's take a look at the 12 steps in the hero's journey. They caveat this outline with the fact that there are variations to the hero's journey, but these 12 steps are, I guess, considered the most common. So first, the call to adventure. So in some way, our hero gets a call to head into some adventure. Second, the refusal of the call. Now, this is kind of obligatory, right? I mean, the fight to not go on the adventure. Now, as an introvert, I can tell you that this is the call to do anything, anywhere, anytime. (laughs) I really don't want to go do this. Uh, Third, meeting the mentor. This is the guide, the oracle, someone who gives advice and guidance, pushes the hero toward the adventure. Number four is crossing the threshold, moving from the known to the unknown. This is the point where the adventure begins. Fifth is the test allies and enemies. Now, this constitutes all of the challenges that the hero goes through during the adventure. Sixth, we have the approach to the inmost cave. This is heading to face the big boss, if you will, the heart of the adventure. Number seven is the ordeal. This is the big boss. This is the heart of the challenge. The adventure either continues toward success or it fails here. Uh, Number eight, the reward. Overcoming the big boss, the main ordeal, a reward is granted, generally in the form of knowledge or an object, something that can now propel them through the rest of the journey. Number nine, the road back. Although new challenges await, even during this part of the journey, the hero is working his way back home. Number 10, the resurrection. This is typically not literal, right? This is a metaphorical change, more than just a step change in knowledge or character. This is a fundamental change to who the hero is. He will never now be the same. Number 11, the return. Now the hero's back home and uses his newfound knowledge, his experiences, his new self, to benefit himself to some degree, but most importantly, to benefit his community. And then number 12 is the freedom to live. This is the happily ever after portion of the journey. A new freedom, a new outlook, and a life that was once in black and white is now lived in a full, vivid 4K color clarity. And that's it. Generally, with some modification, you can find the same journey in most stories, most movies, even most television series, although the journey may extend out through multiple episodes or the entire season, or even leave the season at an unfinished step as a cliffhanger. And then you and I have to hope it doesn't get canceled during the break or else we'll just lose our minds. Now, stories are told this way because we can all identify with the stories, but because they are perfected and idealized and complete, we love them. 
they send us through the full range of emotions and leave us with a satisfying sense of closure at the end. And this is why we can lose ourselves in a book or a movie, using them as an escape from reality, at least for just a little while. Ladies, although there are men that like them too, but these were built for the ladies, this is the basic formula for every single Hallmark movie. This is why they're appealing. But now, well... The hero's journey isn't just for story time anymore. No, no, no. Found on SciPost.org, headline, The Hero's Journey. New psychology research reveals a pathway to greater life meaning. The premise is this, quote, In a series of studies, researchers have discovered that viewing one's life through the lens of the hero's journey can significantly enhance the sense of meaning in life. The findings, published in the Journal of Personality and Social Psychology, provide evidence that reshaping personal narratives to align with this archetypal story can lead to increased well-being and resilience. So right off, I've got a squidgy feeling about this, which is why we're doing this segment, right? Reshaping personal narratives, basically retelling your own life to make it fit an idealized pattern, something doesn't feel right about that. But why would they do this study? Quote, The inspiration for this study stemmed from a modern societal challenge, the quest for a meaningful life in an era marked by social, economic, and existential uncertainties. Researchers were driven by the hypothesis that the hero's journey, a narrative pattern identified by mythologist Joseph Campbell and prevalent in stories worldwide, could be a key to unlocking a deeper sense of purpose and significance in one's life. This narrative has resonated across cultures and epochs, suggesting its potential as a universal tool for enhancing life's meaning. Not sure about you, but I'm not feeling any better about this. Assistant Professor of Management and Organization... <sighs> At Boston College, Benjamin Rogers, the author of this study, said that much of his research is focused on helping people find greater meaning in their lives and professions, especially since the feeling of meaning in life is on the decline today. He further pointed out that this is compounded by the diminishing influence of religion and community. He said that people tend to reconstruct their life stories, omitting events and highlighting others, personally tailoring in their own mind what they believe their life to be in order to enhance their personal feeling of life's meaning. So, since their hypothesis says that we do this sort of thing already, why not just help people with this process? You know, by giving them the idealized framework of the hero's journey to fit their lives into. Quote, this prompted us to consider applying such principles to personal life stories. We theorized that life stories aligning with this timeless, universally appealing narrative would be perceived as more meaningful, reflecting its enduring themes and cultural relevance. So what did they do? Well, they studied thousands of participants, parsed out over 14 studies, eight of which were, I guess, considered to be the main studies with six additional supplementary studies. The study participants were found by using two online platforms, Amazon Mechanical Turk and Prolific. Now, I may be getting old, but hey, may, I said may, maybe, but I have never heard of either of those platforms. So, as I do, I, I looked them up because kind of curious at this point. So both systems are similar with their own little nuances. Essentially, they're both large sources of people. Prolific is a huge pool of screened and heavily categorized people that researchers for whatever can use to research 
whatever they're wanting to research. This isn't free, of course, but rather than phone surveys, calls for participants, etc., the researchers can set up a study, apply preset filters, or set up their own specific requirements, narrow down the crowd to a pool of participants, and perform their study quickly and efficiently. Amazon Mechanical Turk appears to offer the same kind of capability, although it doesn't look to be quite as refined, but they add the capability to also accomplish crowdsourced tasks. So, say a company has a large job that used to require the hiring of a temporary employee or a temporary workforce to accomplish, well, they can now filter down to a pool of temporary workers to knock out the task quickly and efficiently. It's an interesting concept. I think I like it. It's just nothing I'd ever considered even being a thing before this segment, but that's why I'm not a visionary or an entrepreneur. I am just a worn, slightly rusty cog in the machine of life. The study developed their own Hero's Journey Scale, or HJS, which was used to, quote, assess how closely participants' lives aligned with the Hero's Journey narrative. They used a more streamlined version of the hero's journey, the core seven steps comprised of recognizing oneself as a hero, an encounter with a pivotal shift, embarking on a quest, gaining allies, facing challenges, undergoing a personal transformation, culminating in a legacy that benefits the community. Now, the participants in the various studies were asked to rate their agreement with statements relating their lives to the hero's journey elements. The research started with three initial studies. They started with 640 candidates, then narrowed them down to 592 through whatever process they used. These participants were asked to use the rating system and rate their agreement with statements regarding the 21 items associated with the seven elements of the hero's journey. Stick with me here for a minute. They used those factors and other measures of meaning of life from various other studies to determine how views of the hero's journey correlated with the feeling of meaning in life. Side note, one of the studies they used was from 2019 entitled, oh, hang on here, Meaning is about mattering, evaluating coherence, purpose, and existential mattering as precursors of meaning in life judgments. Okay, this is a 73-page write-up and a way-too-long title, but what they did is test people to see what drives the feeling of meaning in life. The long-held hypothesis is that meaning in life is driven by three things. Coherence, or comprehension, which is the ability to understand how the world works and how your life is working inside the world. The sense of purpose in one's life. And then mattering, the feeling that you and your life matters in some way in this world. The conclusion of that study found that the existential sense of mattering was by far the primary driver in a person's feeling that their life has meaning. I'll put a link in the notes where you could download and just carefully and studiously study the, well, the, the study for yourself, if you so choose. But are we starting to see a tie here? The feeling that your life matters, a feeling that your life has meaning, right? This is all the hero's journey. This is what they're trying to tie together. So moving back to our main study, believe it or not, they found a, quote, robust relationship between the HJS, the Hero's Journey Scale, scores and perceived meaning in life. This relationship held even when controlling for the nine commonly identified predictors of meaning, whatever those are. The HJS was also associated with higher well-being, higher life satisfaction, and lower rates of depression. The relationship between HJS and meaning in life was replicated using two other popular measures of life meaning, illustrating the robustness of the HJS meaning in life relationship. 
So what I'm seeing is that if you have a greater view or a greater connection with the hero's journey, your life feels like it has more meaning. That would kind of make sense, right? I mean, if you could see yourself on the hero's journey, you would feel that your life has more of a heroic. Anyway, the second study asked those save 592 participants to audio record their lives on Amazon Mechanical Turk, of which I guess 414 did. The recordings were then transcribed and coded by independent assistants looking for hero's journey elements, as well as some other things. They found, oh man, and hang on tight here, those who viewed their lives as a hero's journey, whether conscious of it or not, tended to tell their life story in the form of the hero's journey. Um, I mean, yes, okay, <laughs> They further found, again, tightly do the hanging on thing, that those who viewed their lives, consciously or not, in the hero's journey, in that sort of format, they tended to feel a greater meaning in life satisfaction, lower levels of depression, etc., etc. So basically, the more they felt their life had meaning, the more they felt that their life had meaning. Groundbreaking. The third study took 60 of the 414 participants who were all in late midlife specifically, which somehow I take offense to, that term, feel right, in the Chicago area specifically, these participants focused on detailed, rich accounts of their life experiences and were again coded for the elements in question, specifically looking for the element of redemption in their lives. They also completed yet another survey, which looked at measures of flourishing and generativity, which is a concern for the guiding of the next generation. Again, I'll ask that you hang on with an overabundance of grip strength here. They found that the more points of redemption in the participants' lives, the greater the hero's journey view of their lives. And the more the view of the hero's journey in their lives, the more the flourishing in the particular life. This basically breaks down the same as the others. Now, Benjamin Rogers, remember him, he marveled, quote, I think the most surprising finding for us was the variety of ways in which the connection between the hero's journey and meaning in life appeared across our studies. And I would have to ask the question, really? I mean, they were shocked by the fact that people who see their lives more like the fictional narratives they read and watch, that we're told just constantly is how life should be, that they feel as if their lives have more meaning? It seems to me that that's exactly what you would expect. I mean, how depressed do people get when the Hallmark movie ends, everything is right with the world, then he or she looks to the other end of the couch where there's nobody? How stressed do we feel with our bills when they're piling up and we watch a movie where someone is the recipient of a financial windfall and all of their problems are now gone? I mean, shoot, for that matter, how terrible do you feel when you see someone's perfect picture of their perfect house or perfect vacation or their perfect family just perfectly displayed on perfect Facebook? And your life, well, it, it doesn't feel so perfect. We've been conditioned to expect the happily ever after type of fairy tale. And if our lives don't match reasonably close, well, then our life meaning suffers. But that's not the interesting part, at least not to me. The next five main studies is where this research takes a very interesting turn. Quote, in five subsequent studies, the researchers delved deeper into the transformative power of the hero's journey narrative by examining its causal impact on enhancing life meaning through a restorying intervention. In these studies, participants were asked to rewrite their life stories, incorporating these elements in a narrative arc resembling the hero's journey. So, 
Studies number four and five were essentially taking life stories from a number of participants, I believe a different group of people as compared to the initial studies, and the participants were split into two groups. The first group was given guidance or prompts on rewriting their stories in such a way as to retell their life in the form of a hero's journey. The other half just got nothing. They're the control group, just left there with their stupid dumb lives the way they stupid dumb are. They found a few things, and you can find these interesting if you'd like. First, for those that got help rewriting their lives to reflect the hero's journey, they perceive their lives as most closely resembling the hero's journey. Yeah, I know, I, I, I know, I, I know what you're thinking. I thought it too. And second, those that got the help retelling their life in the vein of the hero's journey were more likely to find meaning in their life. Exactly, yes. Study six was similar to four and five. Study seven did something with some sort of grammatical pattern of something. I don't know. One of these things is not like the others, in my humble opinion. No idea what study seven was about. Don't really care what their point was with that. But then study eight took 267 participants, had them write about their most important personal problem. Then they were split into two groups again. You had the poor suckers of the control group again, and those that were given help to rewrite and retell their story of their problem. And shocker of all shockers, those that had help retelling their story seemed to be more positive about their problem, and they had better coping strategies, and generally they were more resilient. So the article wraps up with some caveats, as stated by the research team. As with every study, of course, a more carefully screened and more diverse population involved in the study, that would all help to ensure the results are correct. But the caveat that I think is likely the most important, quote, while the studies we present in the paper shows that most people are able to see their life as a hero's journey, whether they do so naturally or do so after our restoring intervention, we acknowledge that there are likely limits to who may be comfortable seeing their story from that frame. In particular, those in truly difficult life situations may not feel the elements of the hero's journey are present in their lives. For people facing those difficulties, we recommend they pursue professional resources to aid them in processing the events in their lives. So, those in the midst of turmoil can't be helped by the hero's journey restoring thing? And the answer is no. Now, these are the examples I gave you earlier about the Hallmark movie or the Facebook post. I mean, sure, the person longing for love from that perfect one for years isn't going to identify with the hero's journey when they're in the midst of their lonely turmoil, but come back to that person while they're snuggled up next to the love of his or her life a few years later, and sure, hero's journey? Well, of course that's my story. And there you go. Now, I'll be honest. I don't know why they did this study. I mean, I know why they said they did this study, but their findings are quite literally nothing when you boil it down. They concluded that those who see more meaning in their lives see more meaning in their lives. That said, there are a couple things that make me nervous about this study. First, their experimentation and conclusion with regard to rewriting or retelling someone's story. I don't see a problem with injecting reality into a life story. This is what I tend to do with people who ask for advice or help with an issue. I want to make sure we get rid of as much of the extraneous emotion as possible and look at the situation realistically, good and bad. Let's face the facts, then work the problem. But that's not what it sounds like they're doing. It sounds like what they're doing is reformatting your life so it's more worthy of the big screen in order to increase your happiness and sense of importance and self-esteem. They're quite literally creating, to varying degrees, 
a delusional fantasy for you to place yourself in and change your memory to. I've heard it said that we don't actually ever remember anything except for the first time. We only remember the last time we remembered something. So if we're off in our memory of our memory of our memory, how long before what really happened and what we think happened aren't even close? How much worse if we implant memories about memories so that we can feel better about our lives? Now, as I've said, we're conditioned to expect the happily ever after, the Hallmark story arc. If our lives don't seem to fit, we're at a point in our history where people struggle to understand what they're doing wrong, why their lives aren't working out correctly. So per the study, just massage your life story into the hero's journey. Your life is just like a Hallmark movie after all. You're just not seeing it here. Let me help you. This just feels wrong to me. It feels fake. It feels manipulative. We aren't allowed to just retell our lives to make it seem better than it is. That's not how life works. And like they said, this doesn't always work for people that are in the midst of life issues. Well, of course it doesn't. Now, we can say that while we walk through the valley of the shadow of death, that we'll fear no evil. But is that always true? And furthermore, do we have to be the hero to find meaning in our lives or to be happy? Should we ensure that we're the center of our story? Is that where we're supposed to be? And this brings me to the second most important issue I find with this, the omission of faith from this study. As I'm starting to find, these studies that at their core are analyzing life and psychology and mentality, they're purposefully leaving out faith as they consider it to be a crutch, a myth, a story, or as this study said, diminishing in influence. But by doing that, they quite literally leave out the greatest journey of all, the real hero, and the only way to find true meaning in life in the real world, without having to manipulate how we view our lives, you know, our ups and downs and our trials and triumphs. Although, I wouldn't disagree that at a micro level, we all experience the hero's journey, so-called, many times over in our lives. You know, small adventures, people helping us, small tests and trials, lessons learned, personal growth, etc., etc., but the reality is that some of us may never make it to the end of that journey in this life on the macro level. For the Christian, the ultimate hero's journey won't end in this life, no matter how good or bad our lives are. And as much as we'd like to be the hero of our hero's journey, we simply aren't. In fact, if we're the hero of our story, we're doing the story wrong. I mentioned earlier that for some, although we walk through the valley of the shadow of death, we're supposed to fear no evil, and yet that's not always the case. But for the Christian... Well, it may not be easy, but we can fear no evil because he is with us. God is with us. He guides. He corrects. He prepares a table in the presence of our enemies. Imagine that. In the midst of battle, surrounded on all sides, the enemy shouting, clashing, swords against shields, frothing at the mouth. And God is like, have a seat. Let's enjoy a meal. There's absolutely nothing to worry about here. Now, that's not because we're the hero. That's because God is the hero, the ultimate, the only real hero. Now, if you're not saved, you don't have this promise. You don't have this hero. You are the hero walking through the valley of the shadow of death by yourself. And you're probably not going to want to set up a table and eat a good meal by yourself. You and I and, and none of us make a good hero, not in the ultimate sense. Now, this study, this desire to rewrite and retell our story, to put us at the center as the hero, this desire to hallmark our lives really flies in the face of a sovereign God when you come right down to it. If God is God, and I maintain that he is, his plan is quite literally perfect. That doesn't mean we always like it. I mean, shoot, there are so many parts of my life that I wish I could go back and change. 
But if we're being honest, if given the chance to change our lives, although momentarily better, our plan will always be ultimately and infinitely worse than God's plan for our lives. I mean, let's be honest here. God kind of has the upper hand on us, you know, with his omniscience and omnipotence and omnipresence, you know, his ultimate sovereignty. By rewriting our story to make it fit a mythical fairy tale narrative, we're telling God that he could have done better, that we'll go ahead and clean it up for him from here and we'll make it what it should have been, if only in our mind. And that just seems like a bad idea and a losing proposition. Living in the United States or a host of other countries, it spoils Christians where we don't face much real adversity or true persecution. But think of the martyrs of old. Think of those in countries today that are being massacred by Muslims or Hindus or other religions and cults simply because they follow the one true God, the God of the Bible. How would this research team rewrite their story to fit the hero's journey? Unless they include the afterlife, you know, our resurrection with Christ, our eventual eternity with him, they simply can't make the narrative fit for the persecuted and martyred demographic. On the surface, in a godless worldview, without the rest of the story, well, the Christian has simply failed. They didn't overcome, but the Christian knows better. For the Christian, the call to adventure starts at birth. The refusal of the call could be likened to our sinful, unregenerate state, meeting the mentors, the point that God regenerates our heart and opens our eyes. This is prior to salvation, mind you. The mentor could be a friend, a pastor, a missionary, and it always includes the truth found only in the Bible. Crossing the threshold, the tests, allies, and enemies, the approach to the inmost cave, and the ordeal could all be likened to our personal journey on the road to salvation. The reward, of course, would be eternal life through salvation in Christ, with the road back being the rest of our lives, full of challenges, trials, failures, and triumphs. And then we die. And then the resurrection, absent from the world, is being present with the Lord, and ultimately we're resurrected in our glorified bodies on a perfect earth, which is our return. And then we have the freedom to live. Never will we be as free as when we're living in a world where sin is no more and Christ is king. Yet, you may see those steps differently from me, but... For the Christian, the true hero's journey is the one that Christ lived perfectly for us and the one that we live imperfectly that ends in glory with Christ as the central focus, the hero of our journey. Nobody was ever promised a Hallmark movie life. In fact, there are some who believe that if you're living a stress and problem-free life, you're probably not living for God the way you should. I don't know that I'd be willing to go that far. God has a unique plan for every single human being and that plan could be anything for anyone. And now there are some that believe that if you have enough of the right kind of faith in God, you'll live a joy-filled, prosperous, healthy life. Well, that's not biblical. Some of the most faithful people we know of had very difficult lives, including horrific deaths, starting with the apostles. The fact is that none of us are promised anything specific about this life. We don't even have the promise of tomorrow. I mean, today may be it. We, Christians, are, however, promised a number of things. We're promised that God will hear our prayers. We're promised that God will provide a way for us to get away from temptation. We're promised that God will forgive our sins, that we can't be separated from his love. He promises to never leave us. He will give us strength. He will fight for us and so many other things. But we're not promised an easy life, a life where everything works out perfectly, a life with a fairy tale ending. To be honest, we're promised that the world will hate us because they hated Jesus. In 2018, a Pew Research poll found that when asked an open-ended question of where they found meaning, only 20% of respondents mentioned faith. 
when people, and I don't know if it's the same group, but when people were asked the same question, but with specific choices available, 20% again said that faith was the most important source of meaning, with 36% saying faith provided a great deal of meaning. Now, for context, 45% of respondents said that caring for pets provided them with a great deal of meaning in life. In both open and closed questions, family was by far the largest source of meaning in life. In 2019, a Cato Institute poll found that conservatives were most likely to feel their lives had meaning, and then that those who volunteered felt more meaning, the older the respondent felt more meaning, Protestants, those who attended church weekly or more, and black Americans, all those demographics felt that they had more meaning in life as compared to the other demographics in their specific categories. Now, according to a 2021 LifeWay poll, nearly 60% of respondents said that they think about how they can find more meaning in their life, at least monthly. People the world over are trying desperately to find meaning. Even in the Cato poll, the percentages of those in the top demographics in their categories who strongly agreed their life had meaning was less than 60%. Which means if you were to compile each of the demographics and categories together, we're talking well under half of America feels that they have purpose and meaning in their life. And we wonder why sexual perversion, drug and alcohol use, mental health collapse, and suicide are running rampant in society. We need to have meaning in our lives. We need to feel that we have a purpose in being on this big blue floating marble. But creating a delusion to provide meaning is just building your house on the sand, so to speak. The reality is that people can find an empty shell of meaning in many, many things. We're blessed or cursed, either way you look at it, with an overabundance of things that can be wedged into a life, shoved into a psyche in order to create the illusion of meaning and purpose. But as the very first question asks in the Westminster Shorter Catechism, what is the chief end of man? That is, what is our purpose? Where do we find meaning in this life? Well, it's answered man's chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. Finding our meaning in anything other than that, whether that be job, family, kids, money, athleticism, stuff, intelligence, status, power, or anything else the world would have us believe brings meaning and purpose, is simply using a cheap, hollow imitation to attempt to satisfy a need. Studies such as this are very important, but not for the reasons we're told by the authors of the study or the sources that publish the findings of the study. No, no, no. For the Christian, the importance lies in understanding the gap between what the world thinks and what the Christian knows. By reading and understanding these studies through the Christian worldview, we can understand with greater clarity how the world is currently searching for what we already know they're searching for, and that helps us know how to talk to them and show them who can actually fill the hole they're desperately trying to dig their way out of. One of the books I'll be telling you about soonly is entitled The Most Misused Verses in the Bible. It was a really good book, really good. And it was, just as the title said, The Most Misused Verses. I think all but one of them I've heard used wrongly just over and over and over again. Well, for probably pretty much ever, uh, the scriptures have been used, and I do mean used, to justify anything and pretty much everything. The favorite trick of the Bible twister is to grab a verse, manipulate it, twist it, pull it, bop it, and make it say exactly what they need it to say in order to make their point or keep their adherence in line or whatever their goal is. But they're usually the easy ones to spot. I mean, sure, they've got a lot of followers, but not really, though. And there will always be a small percentage of the population that will fall for anything and everything. 
Well, then you move into a lot of modern evangelicalism today. And this is where you have a pastor, so-called, who figures out a sermon series idea, writes down their points, fleshes out their anecdotes, figures out where to put their witty quips and jokes to keep the audience, I hesitate to call them congregants, interested. Then, when all of that's done, well, they find a few verses that they can proof text and, you know, just slide into their monologue so they can claim that they preached a sermon. Truthfully, it really doesn't matter if they fit or not. If you just do a word search on Google and grab a couple of the results, say something about, you know, Jesus real quick, and make sure that the minister of worship, you know, that's the guy in the skinny jeans. No, the other one. No, the one with the stocking cap, that one. Make sure he's got some shallow, theologically weak music with just a killer chord progression that can be drug out for seven to ten minutes or so to really get deep into people's wallets. I mean, not wallets, I'm sorry. Get into their hearts. (laughs) Wallets. Ah. Just make sure you can manipulate them enough where they'll have to come back next week because they need to. And with them, they'll bring more of their money. I'm friends, more of their friends. Wow. I'm just, this is not good today. In order to uh, share whatever the heck is being shared by the pastorish kind of guy up front with their friends. Yeah. See, scriptural purity isn't really overly important here. Just Use the Bible. Say Jesus a few times, talk a lot about love and not judging people, and it's okay to not be okay or whatever. I mean, it's all good. I'm sure God appreciates the effort, even if, you know, you do use his word incorrectly. Then you have most of the rest of Protestant Christianity, where pastors, elders, lay people, they simply use verses how they fit or how they've heard them read or how they've been taught because we all know that small groups and prayer meetings are extra powerful because where two or more are gathered, right? And I know life is hard right now. No need to fret for God knows the plans he has for you, plans to prosper you and give you hope and make you pretty, witty, and gay. Except it takes two for God to be in the midst of them. So what happens when I'm melting down under the pressure of the world and I'm alone in my car? (laughs) Guess I'm out of luck. What about Jeremiah 29.10, where God prefaces his plans with the ending of 70 years of exile and oppression? Why don't we ever claim the 70 years of oppression as our life verse? And look, for this group of people, I don't think they mean any harm. Even for the previous group of, you know, the celebrity evangelies, I'm willing to say that probably, eh, probably most of them are just trying to reach people where they are, right? They think they're doing something good. <laughs> Lord, didn't we do a bunch of things? Get a bunch of butts in the seats, didn't we? Didn't we get a ton of people just dunked? And what this leaves is a very small percentage of pastors and churches who just really care and really dig and strive to make sure that they're teaching sound, solid, biblical theology. But we don't care about them. Now, look, I'm not a Bible scholar. I am a theologian, however. And if you're a born-again Christian, so are you. Now, unless you're living in a communist country or a country that is heavily persecuting Christians, you know, places where getting a Bible is nearly impossible. If you're someone in the majority of the world today, you have no legitimate reason to be a shallow Christian. 
We have nothing but access to the Bible, and commentaries, teachers, preachers, the innerliners, devotionals, and every sort of study material we could think of. A discernment needed, of course. The people who are duped by the likes of Benny Hinn and Real Talk Kim, Beth Moore, Rick Warren, Andy Stanley, Perry Noble, Stephen Furtick, and so many more, they have no excuse. They're as capable of opening their Bibles to read and study as anyone else is. Just to blindly follow a blind guide because, you know, you like the cut of their jib. Well, yeah, I mean, the, the Bible warns those teachers, and it's not going to go well for them, but your self-imposed ignorance, well, that's on you. Now, I, for one, don't want to be caught with my theology down. Now, I know I'm not right about everything. There's no way that's possible for any of us on this side of glory, but that's why I read, and I look up cross-references, and I look at commentaries, and I listen to good pastors and teachers, and I ask questions. See, I want to be as right about what I believe as possible. And even with solid Bible teachers, like a couple of my favorites, John MacArthur and the late R.C. Sproul, they didn't agree on every topic. And I know I won't agree with everything that my pastor says. Unfortunately, there is room for interpretation in the Bible. But what we should all be able to admit and agree on is that there is literally only one correct interpretation of the Bible. The Bible isn't a choose-your-own-adventure book where you can, you know, skip and hop from verse to verse and put your own spin on it, make it say what you'd really like for it to say. No, uh, there's only one correct interpretation, one correct meaning to everything in there. And we should all be working and striving to be as correct about our beliefs as possible. Most people don't do this, but but we should. But like I said, just because we should... That doesn't mean that we do this. The Bible has become a repository for, hey, I can use that to justify this. Which is where we find ourselves for this segment here today. Found on dissenter.com, that's D-I-S-N-T-R.com, headline, Southern Baptist and Evangelicals Join Together to Create a Scripture-Twisting Program Promoting Open Borders. And yeah, of course they have. So, Dissenter is a Christian discernment ministry news site. They can be a little heavy-handed at times, but overall, from what I've read on there, they're pretty solid in their analysis. And we're not going to spend a ton of time in this article. We're going to go look at the website they're referring to. We're going to spend the bulk of our time over there, but we do want to get the background. And the article is discussing a lot of good stuff, and it's all surrounding a group that's called the Evangelical Immigration Table, or the EIT. They claim to be a faith-based coalition of people, but according to this article, they're nothing but a front for the National Immigration Forum funded by, and you probably never guessed this, George Soros. So this group is challenging evangelical Christians, you know, me and very likely you, to take the I was a stranger challenge. A few names of those who have signed on to this challenge are Shocker, Russell Moore, J.D. Greer, Johnny Hunt, ugh, Ed Stetzer, the president of Lifeway Research, Max Locato, and Danny Aiken, the president of Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary, <laughs> and many, many others. Uh, and it's supported by groups like Christianity Today, World Vision, and the Wesleyan Church, also among many others. Now, the challenge is for you to read and reflect on a certain carefully selected verse or a few verses each day for 40 days. And by the end, 
I guess you'll no longer be so xenophobic or just downright hateful towards immigrants or more accurately, because let's be honest here, <laughs> undocumented immigrants just trying to make it in this crazy world by breaking the law and illegally jumping the border and living in the United States. As dissenter says, quote, the I was a stranger challenge employs a spellbinding use of 40 scriptures to propagate a Marxist ideology, cleverly disguised as biblical compassion. This initiative, far from being an innocent call to scriptural reflection, is a well-orchestrated ruse to advance a leftist open borders agenda. Its use of scripture is not only misleading, but also dangerously aligns with a political ideology that is antithetical to core Christian values. See, now when they say it that way, I mean, I mean, it sounds like it's not good. <laughs> now, sadly, this isn't just the EIT. No, a lot of Southern Baptists have actually jumped on board with this. If you go to their About page, and I put the link in the notes, they actually have supporters broken down by state. You can see if your pastor's on there or your town or whatever. And let me be clear. I'm not saying that every person that signed on to this thing is a bad person who wants unrestricted illegal aliens to flood across the border. But I am saying that it's a bit concerning if any of these people, these pastors, signed on without fully understanding what they're signing. It's more concerning, however, if they signed on and did fully understand what they were signing. So this is nothing but theological manipulation. This process of meditating and focusing on a carefully selected verse every day, mark my words, this has been very skillfully crafted to slowly but steadily twist your thinking to the point where you will literally believe that those of us who would, you know, build a wall made entirely of razor wire raised to the very heavens themselves with a very tiny, very well-guarded door with criteria for entrance into the country reminiscent of the requirements we had in our early history, you know, on Ellis Island, well, they would make you believe that we're the absolute epitome of evil itself. But that's not what the Bible teaches at all. I mean, God set very defined borders for the promised land and for the divisions of the 12 tribes. Cities, including Jerusalem, had big, beautiful walls to keep people out. The first chunk of Nehemiah was to rebuild Jerusalem's walls. Additionally, anytime we read about the stranger, the foreigner, the sojourner, yes, we're supposed to be kind. Yes, we're supposed to love our neighbor. But when those foreigners were actually living in the land rather than passing through, they were expected to assimilate. They followed the laws. They were subject to the same penalties. They followed the customs. They rid themselves of idols, etc., etc. They became, for all practical purposes, those who they lived in the midst of. They were not allowed to set up little enclaves, little cities within the city where they lived the same as they did from wherever they came from. That just wasn't going to happen. Now, contrast that to the Marxist open border desire, just shoveling masses of humanity into wherever they need them in order to dilute whatever population and destroy the rule of law and eliminate any and all distinctions. The ultimate goal, of course, is to have a ruling class of uber-wealthy elites lording over segments of the world where everyone lives in the same subservient poverty, everyone does what they're told, everyone gets the same ration of bugs for breakfast, lunch, and dinner, they get the same two new pairs of gray coveralls every single year, etc., etc. I know that sounds a little 1984-ish, but that is the ultimate goal. We own nothing. We feel nothing. Laws are handed down from on high. People are expendable cattle. The only thing that stops that right now, at least if you're looking at the earthly realm, is the fact that we have distinct nations. The United States still, believe it or not, being one of them, 
that generally stands up and fights for freedom while protecting their own freedoms. Generally. Quote, What's most bizarre is that the people behind this challenge aren't ignorant. They know they're twisting scripture and committing anachronism. Firstly, the challenge misinterprets scriptures like Genesis 1, 27-28, which speaks to the inherent dignity of all people to support an unrestricted immigration policy. Now, this leap in logic is not only unfounded, but also distorts the scripture's original intent. Similarly, passages from Exodus and Leviticus, which call for fair treatment of strangers, are contextually specific to Israel's theocratic society. Applying these ancient norms to modern nation-states is not only a hermeneutical error, but a deliberate twisting of biblical texts. The article goes on, quote, Moreover, the challenge's interpretation of New Testament passages, such as Matthew 25-35, is equally problematic. While Jesus' teachings indeed do promote compassion for the needy, equating this with support for modern-day social justice initiatives including economically, socially, and criminally dangerous open borders is a gross misinterpretation of these texts. The biblical concept of hospitality cannot be equated with government policy on immigration a complex issue that involves considerations of law, order, and national sovereignty. The epidemic of victimhood that this challenge propagates is another concern. By painting illegal immigrants uniformly as refugees, it not only misrepresents the reality but also undermines the plight of actual refugees facing persecution and life-threatening situations. The biblical call to care for the oppressed should not be misused to advance political agendas that blur the lines between legal asylum seekers and illegal aliens. The influence of this challenge on the prominent Christian leaders is deeply troubling. The spellbinding effect it seems to have had on many, including Southern Baptist pastors, is indicative of a larger issue of leftist infiltration into the church. Rather than upholding biblical truth and discerning the times, these leaders and pastors have become willful participants in a larger socialist agenda, championing a cause that undermines the integrity of both scripture and national sovereignty. Now, let me break in here one more time. I don't believe that all the pastors that signed on to this actually realized what they signed. But like I said, that's troubling in its own right. A couple more paragraphs from the article. Quote, This silly challenge put out by these religious socialist influencers stands as a disturbing epitome of propaganda skillfully exploiting Christian compassion to propel a leftist Marxist agenda in the church. Its distortion of scripture is not merely a misinterpretation, but a calculated deception designed to ensnare the church into endorsing policies detrimental to the very foundations of society. This kind of illogical nonsense marks the endgame in a long-standing effort to infiltrate and realign the church, particularly the SBC, with the social justice movement. And though it has been met with much resistance, the movement is still growing. Southern Baptists as a whole have not only embraced, but are now championing this socio-political ideology. The likelihood of the SBC emerging from this as anything other than a fading socio-political movement is regrettably slim to none. Discerning Christians must firmly reject such manipulative tactics and uphold our unyielding commitment to biblical truth and godly discernment, even in the face of growing opposition and ideological subversion within the church. The integrity of our faith and the future of our congregations depend on our steadfastness in this crucial hour. Now, I don't know how deep the SBC gets into this. I also don't know if the dissenter has a particular bone 
to pick with the SBC, but the gist of what's said here is absolutely true. We're going to look at a number of the 40 scriptures briefly in just a moment, but I want to remind you of something before we head over to the I Was a Stranger challenge. In 1933, the Catholic Church viewed the Nazi Party as a way to stop the spread of communism. As such, they signed an agreement with Hitler that he would keep his nose out of the church and the church would shut their mouths with regard to politics. The Protestant Church was essentially split into two factions. Also in 1933, the German Christians, so-called, led by Ludwig Müller, were of the opinion that anyone in the church with Jewish ancestry should be fired and or removed from the church. Müller was a supporter of Hitler. He was given the title of Reich Bishop. And then you had those who opposed Müller or the Confessing Church which was led by Martin Niemöller. Now, he was arrested by Hitler and placed in solitary confinement in a concentration camp for seven years. Now, he died in 1984 at the age of 92, just FYI, so he made it through. Many other members of this confessional church were also arrested and placed in camps. In 1936, the Reich Church was created. At first, Hitler, with his deals made, left the other churches to you know, have their crosses and their Bibles and their worship services, but but that wasn't his end goal. So, in the Reich Church, they got rid of the cross and replaced it with the swastika. The Bible was removed, uh, and it was replaced with Mein Kampf, you know, put in its place on the altar. Next to that was a sword. And Nazis were the only ones allowed to preach. In 1937, Hitler reneged on his deal with the Catholic Church, much to the furor of Pope Pius XI, not that Hitler really cared, the Nazis started arresting Catholic priests at this point. Hitler wasn't ever actually able to fully annex the Catholic Church in Germany, but he was trying, and he was well on his way. By 1941, both Catholics and Protestants were suffering the same fate. Church property was confiscated, sermons were pro-Nazi political propaganda, children were being indoctrinated with the Nazi party doctrine, and Christianity was on its way to being snuffed out in Germany. Now, I say all that to say this. Don't think that the SBC or any conference or denomination is untouchable. The SBC is in a lot of trouble from a number of social justice initiatives today, just like every other denomination. I know that many want the SBC to stay together. I personally don't think it will, and I don't think it's worth saving. If there's a cancer in the body, cut it out. We don't want to just try to manage that. That's my personal opinion. Yours may vary. But make no mistake, Satan has his designs to rot the church out from the inside. If your church is heading down this path, it's either time to confront or to move. Again, I know that we're not supposed to change churches on a whim, but make sure you're not holding on just to hold on, just because it's easier. If your current church is going down, you don't want to get caught sleeping in your cabin. Okay. I think I made my point. Let's move on and spend the rest of our time here being theologically manipulated. Sound good? Genesis 1, 27 to 28. Quote, So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. So, we're all made in the image of God. There's no difference between any of us. Plus, we're supposed to fill the earth. So, why wouldn't we just want everyone to fill everywhere on the earth? Now, interestingly, they stop before the rest of verse 28, where we're given, you know, rule and dominion over all of the animals. That's not a woke narrative, so no need to bring our 
dominion of nature into this whole thing, right? The reality is it just because we're all image bearers of God, it doesn't mean all people groups are the same. It doesn't excuse people from following the rule of law. It doesn't allow people to just do whatever they want. Exodus 22:21, quote, Don't mistreat or oppress an immigrant because you were once immigrants in the land of Egypt. Well, okay, that's pretty clear, I think, right? Now, this is, of course, speaking of the Israelites. This is part of the law that God was giving to Moses, given right after he gave them the Ten Commandments, in fact. And see, this principle is applicable to today, as immigrants are still around. Okay, here's the problem. The version used here is the CEB, the Common English Bible. And uh, just FYI, they're swapping versions for each verse, probably to find the one that fits their narrative the best. Now, I know nothing about the CEB, but that's because I don't believe it's a common version. But if nothing else, we at least know that they're just kind of making it up as they go along. The Hebrew word they're translating as immigrant is a word H1616 in the Strong's. It's gar, G-A-R, gar. This word at no time means immigrant. It's used 92 times in 83 verses, and it means a temporary inhabitant a newcomer lacking inherited rights, or a foreigner in Israel that's granted some rights. The definition of immigrant is someone who leaves one country to settle permanently in another. Gar is a temporary visitor with little to no rights. Immigrant is a new resident. The Bible doesn't say immigrant. The LSB, for instance, translates it as sojourner. The KJV translates it as stranger. This is a bad translation. And I guess it was done this way to make a point. This is a lie. The writers of the CEB lied. Exodus 23:12, the NLT, quote, You have six days each week for your ordinary work, but on the seventh day, you must stop working. This gives your ox and your donkey a chance to rest. It also allows your slaves and the foreigners living among you to be refreshed. So see, the foreigners living among us should be allowed to work and rest, just like you and I, so says the Lord. But, uh, oh, oh, I'm afraid to say that H1616 Gar is back again. See, the LSB reads this way. Six days you are to do your work, but on the seventh day you shall rest, so that your ox and your donkey may rest, and the son of your maidservant, as well as your sojourner, may refresh themselves. So, not an immigrant. It's just a temporary visitor. In this case, a temporary laborer. Now, the United States has workers' visas programs, but nowhere does the Bible say that a lawbreaker should be given these rights. Lawbreakers were lawbreakers, and, and that's it. And this sojourner is not just allowed the rest on Sabbath. They were expected to rest. They were to assimilate to the land and people they were living in and with. Interestingly, if you go down a few more verses, we find that God was going to send his angel before the Israelites to go before them into the land of the Amorites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Canaanites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites to annihilate them. Now, God didn't tell the Israelites to go into an area with a just a whole bunch of people just milling about. These were distinct nations with distinct borders, and God didn't tell them to just go flood the cities. No, the people that were there, they were wicked people, as we find out later. No, they're going to be completely wiped out, and the Israelites were going to be the owners of that land. Deuteronomy 1.16, NIV, quote, And I charged your judges at that time, hear the disputes between your people, and judge fairly whether the case is between two Israelites or between an Israelite and a foreigner residing among you. 
This again is the word gar. This foreigner is one who is temporarily visiting, temporarily working, assimilating to the culture. And notice that this sojourner is subject to the laws like the rest. Moses is telling the men he chose upon the advice of his father-in-law to help him manage the mass of humanity he had charge of. He told them to hear both sides and hear all people, small and great. So the foreigner is subject to the laws. He's in court pleading his case. The illegal alien, someone who has broken the law to enter the country, does not have that right. There's a doctrine of clean hands, or at least there used to be, where when you come into court, you better have clean hands or things aren't going to go well for you. An illegal alien coming into court to either defend or lodge a complaint does not have clean hands and does not have rights to the law of the land. Now, for the United States, this would apply to rich and poor, the legal immigrant, or the native-born, etc., etc., but not the illegal. Job 29.16, NIV, quote, I was father to the needy. I took up the case of the stranger. Again, the stranger. Ah, but it's not Gar this time. In fact, it's not even stranger. When you look at the word-for-word -word translations, including the LSB, the KJV, the ESV, the NASB, Nearly all of those say something to the effect of, and I searched out the case which I did not know. The thought-for-thought -thought translations, especially the ones that try to simplify the Bible for the readers, say things like, I took up the case of the stranger. Those two things don't sound the same. So the case, or the cause, is Strong's word H7379, reeve. It means a dispute, a quarrel, a case at law. The word they translated as stranger is actually two words, one representing I knew, which is H3045, yada, and then the negating of that phrase translated as not, which is H3808, low. Now, low is simply just not. It's literally just a negative. And yada is to know, which is which is what it was, is to know. I mean, this isn't that difficult, really, when you look at it. In no way would this translate to a stranger. In fact, the way that those who translated a stranger write it, they make it sound like the first part, which is, I was a father to the needy, and the second part, I took up the case of the stranger, are two different things. I don't believe they are. The first and second person in question are actually the same person. Again, going to the LSB, we read, quote, I was a father to the needy, and I investigated the case which I did not know. Job was apparently a public defender, among other things. He took up the case of the poor, the needy, the helpless, who was being unjustly accused of something. Job took on the case he didn't have any prior knowledge of. He did the investigation and defended the individual who couldn't defend himself or afford someone to defend him. This in no way means stranger from the viewpoint of an immigrant, especially not an illegal immigrant, is again, bringing it to today, the doctrine of clean hands would apply. Matthew 2, 13-14, NIV, quote, When they had gone, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream. Get up, he said, take the child and his mother, and escape to Egypt. Stay there until I tell you, for Herod is going to search for the child to kill him. So he got up, took the child and his mother during the night, and left for Egypt. <laughs> this is one of their favorites. See, Jesus was an immigrant. See? But no. Joseph, Mary, and Jesus, they were asylum seekers. 
their lives were in danger, so they left their home and ran to a sovereign nation where King Herod had no rights or power. The United States also has an asylum process, and that process can move quickly, but it doesn't start, or at least it's not supposed to start, with, you know, just illegally coming into the country, and then if you're caught, claiming asylum. Plus, asylum needs to be clearly needed, and as we learned in the previous administration, people coming up from Central America have other nations, including Mexico, with well-defined and defended borders where they can claim asylum before they even get to the United States. But Jesus was an illegal immigrant. They just waltzed into Egypt. Okay, but, but first, we have no idea how they entered Egypt, just that they went there. We know they lived there for two to four years. That's what most scholars agree on. So I would argue that it would be most likely that they actually moved in, complied with whatever process and whatever laws were required to live in whatever city they lived. And even if they didn't, Jesus was a baby, a, a toddler when they left there. He didn't do anything. If laws were broken, which I'd argue they most likely weren't, but if they were, Joseph would have been the lawbreaker, not Jesus. And don't lose sight of verse 15, which they didn't use in this, in this scripture, quote, and he remained there until the death of Herod. See, their asylum ended when the reason for their asylum was gone. That's not an immigrant moving into a new country to live. Those are sojourners, foreigners, temporarily there for a specific reason. Moving on, Philippians 3.20 ESV, quote, But our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Okay, unless they're trying to claim that all dogs go to heaven, you know, everyone winds up there in the end, I'm not sure what they're trying to say here. <laughs> Quite literally, only a small fraction of all humanity throughout all of history will be in heaven. These are termed the elect, and regardless of your theological bent, Calvinism or Arminianism, or as I call them, the correct one and the incorrect one, respectively, the elect are the only ones who will be allowed in heaven. We know that prior to the second coming of Christ, there's a gulf between Abraham's bosom and Sheol, whatever these pre-final judgment heaven and hell places are, and I'll admit I don't have a good grasp on what exactly we're talking about there, but even there, there's a chasm, a gulf. We know that the New Jerusalem has walls and gates, although the gates won't be closed as they don't need to be, and those who are unsaved, they'll exist for eternity in hell. Heaven doesn't have an open border policy. So long as you understand correctly that only the saved go to heaven, this verse does not help their cause. And yeah, I know, I probably made some of you mad with the Calvinist crack. I mean, that is actually what I believe, but yes, I was just taking a swat at the bee's nest, you know, just for fun. Let's do one more and then we'll wrap this up. 1 Peter 2, 11 to 12, NLT, quote, Dear friends, I warn you as temporary residents and foreigners to keep away from worldly desires that wage war against your very souls. Be careful to live properly among your unbelieving neighbors. Then even if they accuse you of doing wrong, they will see your honorable behavior and they will give honor to God when he judges the world. So, since we, Christians are foreigners in this land, just temporary residents, as it were, then open borders and allowing anyone to freely come across our sovereign borders is okay. But is that what this really says? So God put us here. We didn't sneak onto the earth. Salvation is of God and salvation doesn't make us immigrants. In most translations use words like exiles, pilgrims, sojourners again, or strangers. The two Greek words in question are G3941, Peroikos, which means stranger or 
sojourners or foreigners, and G3927, perepidimos, which means a pilgrim or a stranger. But more importantly, this isn't talking about an immigration status. This is a spiritual condition. We're just passing through. We're temporary residents of this earth. And although all mankind is only temporarily here, you know, during his or her lifetime, again, Peter is speaking to the Christians specifically. In no way does this approve of illegal immigration and open borders. In fact, if you go down one more whole verse, Peter tells us to submit to human authority, the kings, the governors, etc. Well, wouldn't that be submitting to the law of the land? We have a president, not a king, and the laws are what are supposed to govern the land. Those illegally jumping the borders are not living in submission to those in authority. If they were, they'd follow one of the many legal, well-established paths in place to legally come into the country. So, you can see what they're doing here, right? They're going to get you to associate stranger and foreigner with immigrant. And let's just drop the illegal part because, you know, is any human really illegal? We're all image bearers of God, right? Like I said, nowhere in the Bible will you find a place that says we shouldn't have sovereign nations or borders. Nowhere in the Bible will you find a place that makes it okay to break the law. But don't worry, just in case you need some help making your case, they have a free ebook that you can download, you know, by simply entering your information. And no thank you, I didn't do that. Or they have sermon outlines and resources. They've got statistical data. They have immigrant stories. They have a number of helpful quotes like, quote, the church must always show compassion, always. A good Samaritan doesn't stop and ask the injured person, are you legal or illegal? So says Rick Warren. Quote, in term of the Great Commission, right here in our own home, right here in the United States, right in our towns, we've never faced such a Great Commission responsibility. We have never faced such a Great Commission opportunity. So says Albert Moeller. Quote, I would like to see us as a country find a way to provide for illegal immigrants to stay, but still have them pay a reasonable penalty. Such a solution would give honor to the law and show mercy to the immigrants whose situations are so varied and so many. It's not an easy black and white. They disobeyed, so get them out of here issue. There's a lot of exploitation. We've benefited a lot from these people, etc. So says John Piper. Well, neither Warren nor Moeller said that they approved illegal immigration, although pretty sure that Warren does, just that Christians should act like Christians, regardless. That's why missionaries go. That's why people go into prisons. The situation doesn't relieve us of the duty to be Christians. That doesn't make illegal immigration right or legal, however, nor does the Bible say breaking the law is okay. As for Piper, well, I've made no bones about Piper before, I know he is beloved by many, I understand that. As someone who really wasn't aware of Piper until a handful of years ago, I'm not a fan. He's going more and more woke and more socially justice the older he gets. So his statement doesn't really shock me. And although he's right that illegals have done some things for this country and that some of them have been exploited, the fact remains that they broke the law. Many of them have committed crimes, many of those violent and by allowing them to break the law, we're setting a precedent, and at least at the same time, we're, we're flying the tall finger to those who desire to follow the law and come in legally. John Piper, once again, is in the macro sense at least, wrong. 
Now, the website includes guides for how to talk about immigration, information on refugee resettlement, ways to be an advocate, legal services for immigrants, etc., etc. And all of this is great if we're talking about legal immigration, but we're not, and that's the problem. The reality is that people from other countries either want to come here because of the freedom and prosperity, or they want to come here with intentions of destroying us. Open borders allows both kinds to just come on in, but coming in illegally gives no incentive to assimilate to the country that they so admire, and it ultimately will bring this country down to the type of country they ran away from. Allowing illegal immigration allows the exploitation of women and children, the massive influx of drugs, crime, and violence, not to mention the exploitation that Mr. Piper is so concerned with. If you want all that to stop, the answer is to stop the flow of illegals and manage the flow of legal immigration very carefully. If we cared about people, if we truly loved our neighbor, if we wanted to act as Christians per the Bible, the right thing to do is to not allow people to break the law by coming here illegally. If we want to be Christians and love and care about people, then we want strong borders to protect a nation that by being protected can offer help to the world through the generosity of a prosperous nation, mostly Christians, as the ones who are the most generous. To do anything else is not being a good Christian. It's simply ignoring reality. It's ignoring the Bible, and it's allowing emotion, not truth, to reign in your heart and mind. And with that, sadly, we've reached the end of yet another episode of the Logical Christian Podcast. I feel we've bonded as we've laughed and cried and twisted our faces in incredulity. If you've enjoyed or found value in what you've heard, go on and do all the podcast things. And don't forget to check the show notes for links and contact info. Lawrence J. Peter said, Against logic there is no armor like ignorance. Jesus told us that if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples and you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. So stay in the word, stay logical, stay faithful, and until next time, God bless. Well, here we are. You never thought this day would come, did you? But it did. So maybe a little apology for doubting me like that. That's all I'm saying. Look, I deserve better than this. <clears throat> anyway, we've made it to goal update number one for 2024. So I put some thought into how I want to do this, and I'm going to do these goal updates a bit differently than last year. My plan is to do a goal update every eh, three or four weeks, give or take, rather than weekly. And I'm not going to do my little book reviews, whatever those may entail, or my Bible study notes and questions and revelations or what have you. At least, I'm not going to do those as part of the goal updates. I'm just going to try and keep the goal update simple. Just an update on the status of my goals, my triumphs, my struggles, you know, just the, uh, the uh, kind of basic stuff. I'm going to move my book reviews, whatever those may entail, to their own separate update whenever I finish a book. So those will pop up randomly. I'm also moving my Bible study notes to their own separate update, probably on the same kind of frequency as my goal updates every three or four weeks, give or take. Of course, by doing it that way, there will be some random weeks where there won't be anything after the bumper music. And I've got a few other ideas that, I don't know, maybe I'll use that time and fill it in there. But as for right now, this is where I am. I figure by doing it this way, rather than having a, uh, well, what's become a rather extensive goal update, especially if I try to fit all the stuff in, and especially if it's on a three or four week basis, I can keep each of these post-podcast segment things just a bit shorter and to the point, but not have to rush through any of it because I'm thinking I'm running too long. So I don't know. Hopefully that makes sense. We'll just have to kind of try it and see how it goes. I mean, to be honest, I'm kind of winging it here. 
So anyway, today is goal update number one, as I've said already. I've basically got six goals that I'm formally tracking, and I really see no reason why I can't give an update on all of these. So let's go ahead and get started. I started tracking these goals on January 8th, except for one, I'm basically tracking Tuesday night through Monday which kind of makes these updates a little weird since I drop new episodes on Monday morning. So all the data I'm talking about is nearly a week old already. But uh, I mean, this is the world I've built. So we're just kind of stuck with it for now. So first is weight, just like last year. Okay. So after last year, after doing some research, after just basically cratering the second half of the year, as I said I was going to do, I want to do this slower and hopefully more sustainably and with keeping things like fat and muscle percentage in mind along with weight. And I want to shoot for what I'd consider to be a more reasonable weight. So I didn't lose all my progress from the first half of 2023, but losing about five pounds over the course of a year that's not generally overly impressive. You know, just calling a spade a spade here. So for all intents and purposes, look, I'm starting over, okay? My starting weight, therefore, was 209.8. After two weeks of diet and exercise, I'm down to 206.6. So that's a loss of 3.2 pounds. I have a goal, which I may adjust as I go on, of losing what should be a relatively simple amount, 1.2 pounds per week. So as of right now, I'm slightly ahead of my weekly goal loss thing, right? Now, my overall weight goal is to get to 180. That's about the weight where things start to get really tough, or at least I feel like it's really tough, and where everything just kind of starts to fall apart. So if I can get there and slow down and kind of ease to a stop, that will hopefully work better for me. I don't know, right? In those same two weeks, okay, my fat percentage went down from 19.3 to 18.9. My muscle percentage went up from 52.1 to 52.4. Now, do I expect these results to stick for right now, or do I expect them to repeat at this rate? Eh, yeah, I'm not uh, I'm not going to hold my breath on that one. I'm kind of trying to let the body equalize itself. And as part of that, I'm also tracking net calorie consumption and doing some Excel spreadsheet math to determine what it appears my body is burning on a daily basis. So for right now, I'm kind of playing with it to see what I can learn. I'd imagine in the next week or two, I'll get more serious about it. Okay, next, another copy of last year, pages read. So my goal is 4,500 pages for the year. That's up from last year. And that comes out to just over 88 pages per week. So far, I've made it through a small booklet and two regular books, plus some more pages of books I'm currently working through. And this gives me a total right now of 465 pages read for the update. That puts me at 10.3% of my yearly goal completed, compared to a goal of about 4% is about where I should be. And so that's well ahead of the goal. Now, I'll review the books I finished up thus far soon in the next week or two, including what I would consider to be one of the top, I'll say one of the top five books I've ever read, maybe better than that. All right, next, we come to, again, like last year, Bible reading. Now, this year, I've got basically the same kind of goal as last year, five days per week getting into the Bible. Now, I've got this split with the goal of four days doing the daily kind of reading, one day doing an in-depth type of thing, you know, where I follow all of the references, dig a bit deeper, etc. For the first two weeks, I'm sitting at 140% of my goal. And then I kind of want to get ahead of my goal while I can, because I guarantee there's going to be days or maybe even a week here or there where it's going to be really difficult to make my goal. 
For the daily type reading, I've taken what I have left, which is basically everything but Genesis, Exodus, and Job, and I've created my own kind of reading plan so as to finish the Bible chronologically by the end of 2025. Now, as of now, I'm about a week ahead of schedule. I'm doing it this way because I'm not necessarily just reading it through. I've done the Bible in a year plan thing before. I even did a Bible in three month plan and uh, wow, right? That's crazy. And the retention is just not there. And typically you're just pushing to get through the chapter load on a daily basis. And if you miss a day, oh, you're really sunk. So the odds of you actually stopping to chase down some rabbits or dig a little deeper or even take some notes trying to make it through that are pretty slim. So I wanted to give myself extra time to be able to do all of those things. All right, as for the in-depth reading, well, that's going to take me the rest of this life and maybe a good chunk of eternity at my current rate. But that's why that's kind of a long-term goal. To facilitate the book and Bible reading, I'm trying to get to bed earlier. My goal, eventually, is lights out by 11 o'clock in the p.m. Now, I've failed at that for the most part thus far, but I am getting to bed earlier at least on the work nights, which allows me to get up about 5 o'clock in the a.m., which is an hour earlier than I used to get up, and then I spend about 40 minutes or so in the Bible. Now, I gotta say, after only a few weeks, I really actually like that schedule, and I really didn't think I would. We'll see how it goes, you know, as time goes on. And I've moved Bible reading out of my lunch period, which is what I was doing last year, and now I'm doing it in the morning, and so I've moved book reading into the lunch period at work, and at least so far, this makes it feel like I, I don't have to rush as much trying to read my Bible, and then if I miss a day or two of reading, well, if it's my book, no harm done, right? I mean, that's not a problem. So I think that doing this, rearranging the sleep schedule, getting up earlier, Bible in the morning, the, the book at lunch, I think that'll actually better facilitate my pages read, that will better facilitate my Bible reading, and will probably help me feel better, and I think if I get to bed early enough, will help the snacking, which will help the diet, so I mean, what are we at, like a win-win-win-win-win-win, something like that. Uh, more on the Bible reading and my discoveries and my thoughts, etc., also coming soon, right, in the next week or two. Okay, a new one for this year, learning Greek. Yeah, so it turns out I'm not great at making life choices, <laughs> but here we are. So to do this, I'm using Duolingo. No idea if that's the best one to use or not, but it's the one I chose. My goal is to hit this seven days a week, you know, because I want to keep that all-important streak going. My secondary goal is to do it for about 10 minutes a day. Now, that equates to two or three lessons per day, and honestly, that's a pretty minimal amount of time as compared to the other things that I'm doing. And it can be done while I've got something on the TV or while I'm eating or in the middle of whatever, and I can do one lesson now and I can do another lesson later. I mean, it could just kind of be slipped in whatever. Now, as of this update, I've hit both goals so far, so I'm keeping my streak alive. I'm just streaking all over the place, to be honest. And I worked on it 493 minutes over two weeks. Now, don't worry. That relatively high amount of time spent is dropping back down to something more reasonable. I, I really don't have, or at least I don't want to spend four hours a week doing this. So that number will settle into wherever it falls, and I'll just kind of have to see. Second to last on my tracking spreadsheet is prayer. Now look, I pray throughout the day, little things here and there, like I guess most Christians do, but I wanted to work on focused prayer time. That's something I just don't do enough, and I never have. The amount of time for this varies, right, depending on the number of 
factors, the number of things you have on your list. But but I'd say I've been averaging probably in the 20 to 30 minute per time, probably. Uh, my goal is to do this five days a week. And as right now, I'm slightly ahead of the goal, which let's be honest, that's where you really kind of want to be when it comes to prayer. I've been doing this at night before bed. So again, me heading to bed at a reasonable time is the key for me to do this. And like I said, going to bed at 11 o'clock, especially lights out, that's really hard. But I'm getting there. I'm working there. So what am I doing with this? Well, I'm using the ACTS prayer method. That's A-C-T-S, which stands for Adoration, Confession, Thanksgiving, and Supplication. It's basically giving God praise for who he is, confessing sins, thanking him for, I mean, just a small portion of the infinite blessings he's given, and then making my requests known. Now, there are certain things I pray for every or nearly every time. There are some things like, say, family, that I kind of generalize and pray for every time. But I'm also using an app called PrayerMate. Really good app, has a number of features. It's listed as one of the top prayer list app things on nearly every site I looked at. That said, the user interface is, at least to me, it's a little clunky. Now, I see what they're trying to do, and I understand what they're trying to do, but I think they've kind of overdone it. Once you use it, though, and you get used to it, it's actually great, okay? I use it mostly for just prayer lists. So I have a list of family members. I have a list of personal things. I have a list of government-related things, etc., etc. It's got a feature for a prayer session. That's the thing that I really like about this. So you can start the prayer session, tell it how many items from your lists that you would like it to randomly give you to pray for. Now, I've chosen seven because I have no idea. Let's just say it's the number of completions. So there. Uh, it appears to kind of randomly generate your list of seven, but I think, at least it appears, that it actually works its way through all of your listed items before starting over randomly again. So after I get done praying the acts prayer, I'll pull up the prayer session and then pray for each item on the list, uh, everything that it's chosen. I'll pray for those specifically. So for instance, my family, that means that every time I'm praying, I'm praying for all of you in a general sense, but about once per week or so, I focus prayer specifically on each and every one of you. Now, this may not be the best way to do it, but I've been doing this for a little while now, and I really think, at least for me, it helps me to stay focused in my prayer time and be more efficient, right? There's no nonsensical babbling or vain repetition or feeling that I need to hurry up because, man, I got a list of 50 things I got to get through, that sort of thing. So I, th I think it's good for me. If you have, I would say, issues trying to organize and think through your prayer time, maybe give it a shot. Lastly, again, an illustration of my life choices, memorizing the book of Romans. <laughs> okay, so after giving it some thought, I decided that I do this very slowly, as I simply don't have time to do everything, and I don't have the energy to be laser-focused on all things at all time. I need my downtime. So I set up a plan to have it memorized, I know this sounds long, but in four years. That equates to a verse about every three days. Now, so far, I'm about eight verses into chapter one. Again, that doesn't sound impressive, especially when you couple it with the fact that about three or four years ago, I had the first two and a half chapters memorized, so it's really not that impressive, but it's a work in progress. Fun fact, did you know that the first sentence of the book of Romans encompasses the first seven verses? Yeah, you don't find your first period on the end of a sentence until the end of verse seven. You do, however, find ten commas throughout, though. 
So I'm on track with that memorization for now. We'll kind of see how things go. Of course, the more you memorize, the longer it takes you to go through it and practice it, but I'll cross that bridge when I come to it. So as of right now, everything is a nice green goal achieved color. Some of these are going to be harder than others to keep up with, and some of them, depending on what life throws at me, I would consider to be more expendable than others. So for now, these are the goals that I want to track uh, in 2024. Now, rest assured, future goal updates will be much shorter than this one. There was a, a good amount of setup and background that I wanted to do on this specific one. So the goal updates of the future won't be this long, which is the point of me breaking up the various parts and pieces of what used to be the goal updates. And with that, that should do it. So feel free to chime in with any questions or comments, ideas, tips, tricks, or just tell me what your goals are for the year. You can leave a comment or you can find my email address on the worldwide interwebs in the show notes. Uh, you have, uh, you have set a few goals at least, right? For this year, right? Not New Year's resolutions, right? Those things never work. Um, actual goals that you truly want to accomplish. If you haven't, I would recommend again, like I did last year, I'd recommend you do it. You know, even just if it's a couple of them, unless you're one of those super nerdy types that can just store everything up in your brain case and, and just keep it all organized and everything else, really the best way to accomplish a goal is to start by writing it down. Okay, goal update number one, 2024 edition, in the books. You know what that means, don't you? Yeah, you do. <laughs> okay, bye.